right. Be mindful, Kevin. God damn it. Be mindful. Losing my zen here. <laughs> okay. Okay, try again. All right. Okay. Uh, okay. Introducing the Super Dharma Bros. Now, what I suggest you do is this. Have yourself seated with your backs as safe as possible, but not stiff. And now see how you feel. Don't put words on it. Just feel. But if you can't help words running in your head, don't interfere with Okay. Okay, try again. All right. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Super Dharma Bros YouTube video and podcast channel. Uh, I'm Chris Accardo. Uh, represent- oh. <laughs> and I am Kevin Walker. How dare you leave your Dharma bro out of that? I was, I was gonna, that was, I was gonna get to that. <laughs> uh, clearly, as you can tell, we are new to both. The, well, Kevin actually does a lot of YouTube. I'm new to the YouTube and podcasting thing. Um, so this is a bit of an experiment. But yeah, so I mean, I feel like this terrible halting opening video and podcast is a perfect time to talk about yeah, like, why are we doing this? What are we trying to do? Why are these two idiots talking to you right now? Well, how about we start with who the idiots are, and then we'll go on from there. <laughs> that's, okay, yeah, that's good. So, um, so yeah, my name, so I'm Chris Accardo, um, and I, I represent our Tibetan Buddhist branch of Buddhism in, in this conversation. Um, and that's something I converted to, actually, as as a child when I was young. Um, a lot of what we talk about here is gonna be kind of the Western convert Buddhist experience, um, which I think makes up a decent chunk of it. It's not all of Buddhist experience, but a lot of us are converts to Buddhism. Um, and I think a lot of us convert to Buddhism for the same reason, which is stuff's not going great. Uh, it's a funny thing when I when I first started spending time in Buddhist circles and people would start asking each other, you know, they wouldn't ask, how did you get into Buddhism? They would say, what happened to you to get you into Buddhism? Um, and I think that's that's what happens to all Buddhists in a way. It's in in texts they have this the story or the you know the thing of the three messengers: sickness, old age, and death. Um, and I profoundly met a bunch of those messengers very young in my life. And I think that kind of directed me for whatever reason to look for answers. And I found Buddhism um, and it clicked and I kind of never looked back in a way, although I spent a lot of time in doubt and questioning. In spite of being a devout Buddhist almost more than not my entire life now, where I grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, didn't exactly have any Buddhist presence. So I grew up kind of isolated and alone as a Buddhist. It's funny, I when I walk into a Barnes and Nobles, I often feel this like sense of like church, if you will. And I realized I think it's because so much of my young Buddhist experience was going into bookstores and finding books on Buddhism. Everything in my faith was text-based and kind of isolated, but I wanted more. So when I turned 18, I moved to Ithaca um, to go to college 
because that was the only college that let me in. And um, in Ithaca, we have Namgyal Monastery. And I had seen that name, Namgyal Monastery, Ithaca, New York, and so many different things. And it was kind of like these breadcrumbs that are like, go there. So I think in this way, to this point in the story of, of me and my Buddhist practice that we just talked about, it's pretty normal, isolated, alone, reading texts, trying to piece it together. So I think in that way, I'm very much the classical, typical American Buddhist. Kevin, tell us about yourself. All right, so uh, I am Kevin Walker, and my family was not religious. So when I was in my teens, because that's when we all go through a crisis, uh, I decided to explore various uh, world religions, and Buddhism sort of stuck too. It was more complicated than I thought because all the various uh, traditions that you could choose from. So I primarily was a Zen Theravada guy, which uh, there's a compare and contrast for you. And so I chose Theravada because there were more texts to sort of guide me along the way. And I'm a book smart person. So if it requires reading, I sort of want to get into that because that's how I learn best. Uh, that's like I said, that started in my teens and I became more serious in my 20s studying. I didn't necessarily practice yet. Uh, formally, I put my practice at uh, 2009. And then sort of like the next big step was I transferred to Ithaca College, where Chris was in 2012. And one of the reasons why I chose to go there was because there was an Ithaca College Buddhist community. And I'm like, that's cool, you know, living in a small town, you know, they're Everyone was, everyone was Christian or non-religious. So it was like, wow, this is great. I can actually be in a community of like-minded people. And I didn't actually, know you knew that when you came here. Sorry, I didn't know you knew that. Yeah, I, I looked at the groups that were available there. So yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. And you know, since uh, I graduated in 2015, I haven't had a, like a formal community that I've gone to. I've gone to like meditation periods and all that and talk uh, Buddhism with people. Or I specialize in talking about Buddhism to my Lyft drivers, because I don't drive myself. I either ride my bicycle or I take a Lyft or I take the bus or whatever the occasion needs. And so, and they're, they're always nice about and say that it's interesting. But since this whole coronavirus mess, I've been way more serious about my practice and my studying. So if there's any positive that can come out of this uh, coronavirus situation is for me personally, my practice has started to go in what I think is a good direction. So I don't know, before that, it was just like, you know, I would, <clears throat> you know, take a step and then take a step back and then take a step forward again and take a step back. But, and we'll talk more about that in the uh, faith and Buddhism uh, yeah. episode about how it's re returning to it. So um yeah, that's, that's about it with my experience. You know, I'm not like formally converted or anything. I haven't gone to like a teacher and been like, yeah, Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, totally. Um, yeah. But, but still, you know, for me, it's something that I take seriously, but not so serious that when I see a fat Buddha statue, I sort of laugh at it. <laughs> and I think, I think that's something we both, we both have a lot of fun and lightheartedness around our faith, which is good too. Um, one thing I didn't talk about, this isn't in our notes. I'm going vaguely off script. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Ithaca College Buddhist community just ever so slightly because that's how Kevin and I met. And honestly, that was the most reluctantly formed Buddhist community I think that ever existed. So when I showed up to Ithaca, I had just assumed there would be a Buddhist presence because 
on the campus because of course there is it's one of the few Tibetan like authentic tradition traditional Tibetan monasteries there in Ithaca. Of course there will be some on campus. I didn't research that at all. Um, there was none. And honestly, I just got tired of getting kicked out of the chapel. Like every time I'd go to like pray or meditate, there'd always be like a service and I'd have to scamper out. And after a while, I was like, screw it. Maybe we'll just start a community. And my ultimate goal was to be in almost in no way involved. Um, but that didn't happen. <laughs> um, but, you know, Ithaca College was amazing. They, everyone there, the, the priests, the rabbis, everyone was super invested in us getting that group off the ground. At the same time when we came in was when a lot of the interfaith dialogue started at Ithaca College. An interfaith community got started, interfaith councils got started. And I think, I don't want to like speculate too much, but I think that's because we kind of represented one of the first formalized practicing as a group, non-Judeo-Christian groups on that campus. Maybe in its history, I don't know. Like, again, research isn't my thing. But yeah, so that, that, that group has a soft spot in our heart. That's the first time where I felt like I was in sort of in a place where I sort of belonged because, you know, the first time I went, y'all were, I forget what y'all were talking about, but I was, I was rattling off all the list stuff. Right. Yeah. And, and y'all were like, sort of like looking at me like, who is this guy? Where did he, oh from? how does gosh. he know that? <laughs> I, rem- I remember that. I remember being like, oh shit, he knows the lists. I don't know the lists. <laughs> so for our view, for our viewers and our listeners, we're going to have a lot of those lists. So, but we're going to simplify it so that it's not as difficult to remember. Kevin is going to have a lot of those lists. Chris is going to broadly and vaguely <laughs> sum it up with no follow-up. We are going to, when we do mention things like this, we are going to try and include citations maybe in the descriptions and things like that. Yes. So, so you can look these up yourselves. Um, and, and, and Kevin is inspiring me to try and do that more myself and have my citations at hand. So thank right, you, right. Kevin. You're, you're welcome. <laughs> so, so moving on though, you know, so that's where Kevin and I meet and we both felt very at home with the Ithaca College Buddhist community. Um, but I think both of us have had kind of different experiences leaving that group. And this is where kind of the conversation turns to, you know, I feel like we both almost have normal beginning starts with Buddhists, but then things kind of feel more unique for us. And so for me, when I finally was able, when I left Ithaca College, I was able to spend more time integrating with my own local community of Buddhists. I realized I didn't feel quite at home all the time. And it's something I still struggle with. And one of the big things is that I didn't in any way relate to or connect to a lot of the cultural parts of Buddhism. I just kind of felt this deep disconnect, you know? So like a question that I often got from people, like when I'd be sitting around with other Buddhists was like, oh, like, where did you go to learn about Buddhism? Or like, where did you first like feel inspired by Buddhism? Like, did you go to Nepal? Did you go to Tibet? Did you go to Thailand? And I was, and this is a joke, but also dead serious. I was like, I went to the cornfield behind my house. That's where Buddhism was for me. Like Buddhism feels as much a part of my literal and metaphorical landscape as anything else, you know, it's, it's completely is completely one with my identity, quote unquote, mm-hmm. as an American and as a practitioner, they, they are one in the same for me. Um, 
And the other thing that kind of happened that made me feel even more disconnected from Buddhism, and, and not, to, not to say Buddhism, the teachings, but like the organization of it was when at a certain point in my life, I became a tradesperson. So, you know, I worked with my hands. I work with tools. I go to job sites that are loud and filled with rock and roll and swearing and fights. Um, and I felt more disconnected then because often Ron Gilmore, our advisor at the Ithaca College Buddhist community, was the one who taught me this phrase, the upper middle way. Um, that Buddhism in America is typically white, which I am middle class, which I am, but also not working class, academic, you know, kind of focused more in the thought sphere. And so, you know, when, like when I go to my monastery, like to this day after work, I'm often mistaken for a maintenance guy, just like there to be working on something. Or when there are maintenance guys who are there who are doing work, they'll come up and start talking to me but, and they'll be saying things like, ah, I can believe we're working on this crazy place again with all these dudes wearing skirts and stuff. And I'll be like, I'm, I'm actually a Buddhist. Like, I, I'm, I'm here to pray. <laughs> you know, it's, it, there's this kind of disconnect that like, you can't be both those things. And I am. And, and the other thing too is that we're young, and this is true for Kevin and I both, we're millennial Buddhists. Um, and I think the one thing that all millennial Buddhists have in common is that they're not common. There's not a lot of young practitioners out there. Um, all religions as a whole are, you know, aging out in a way and not being represented in younger demographics, but especially Buddhism. It, it surges with the boomer generation and then kind of drops off steeply. Um, so, yeah, I mean, basically, like, what what I'm bringing to the table is this being an American working young Buddhist. Yeah, so I bring sort of a similar viewpoint uh, with the exception that when we talk about a lot of things in Buddhism, I'm like drawing, you know, from ideas from all sorts of other teachers and sort of, but I was also voted most opinionated in high school. So I have an opinion about everyone else's opinion. And so that's something that I sort of bring is that I sort of bring my own sort of twist to some of the things that, you know, we've we debate in Buddhism. I mean, Buddhism debates within itself if it's a religion or not. So and that's something that I described as the ketchup because I like putting ketchup on things. It's the ketchup. It, en it enhances the flavor of the experience. And also, you know, something that I've always believed, you know, and this really became something that I focused on with the Ithaca College Buddhist community was the teachings some of the teachings are really difficult to understand, but they're applicable and can be applied in our everyday life if we're able to simplify it so that people can understand it. So that's something that I think, you know, for the most part is unique to sort of what we're doing is that we're taking all these really complicated teachings and we're saying, look, you can apply this here, even if you don't fully understand it, because we don't fully understand it. Um, because a lot of the Dhamma talks are, you know, about people that have studied it their whole lives, or a lot of the, uh, the monistics that do talks, they're like four years old and they're, and they're, and they become like child monks. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it's like, wow, I, I wouldn't, I couldn't imagine, you know, myself doing that because of like the culture that we're in. Um, but, you know, sort of, you know, 
bringing Buddhism down to earth, I guess, is sort of what I think we're trying to bring to the table. And I think that is one of our primary goals. Yeah, yeah. So I, uh, a teacher in my own tradition who a recent book he had, he wrote, uh, this is Mingyur Rinpoche. He wrote a book recently called Love with the World, um, which is a memoir of a recent um, experience he had. Um, where he talks about kind of integrating into daily life. Um, this is in rural India, so very different from where Kevin and I are. Um, but a thing he talks about, and this is like in the first chapter, is, oh my gosh, none of my background has prepared me for what normal life is like when he's trying to live a, quote, a normal life integrated to society. And he talks about how monastic experience gives us a lot but it falls short of the day-to-day sometimes for the modern day-to-day and so i think for me and i'm i think for kevin as well both of us represent kind of the normal modern american experience to a degree but both of us or definitely myself but i think both of us we've also kind of felt this disconnect from the integration of our faith and that experience and so if we are normal americans why is this not working you know is buddhism relevant in america if we're normal americans and it's not it doesn't always seem relevant would it be for anyone else and if that's a good question and why and this is my question for this whole experiment we're doing is why is it not and what can it be done to become relevant um and my my hope in doing this we're not teachers kevin and i are not perfect we don't we're we're we are just on the same path as every other buddhist practitioner out there and the thing we bring to the table it's imperfect and it's ugly and it's like half formed but it's in our language it's in our experiences and i'm hoping it will sound similar to your languages and your experiences as practitioners just listen to our banter at the beginning we're sort of just wandering around, you know, sort of like, yeah, we know this stuff, but we don't know exactly what we're doing with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I guess, so for me, and sorry, Kevin, I'm going off notes again. This is a different note I didn't tell you about. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying not to do this, but I, I get off on segues a lot. <laughs> but, you know, my big thing, so my, my question is, what is Western Buddhism? What should it look like? Or what will it look like? But I'd like to be clear, I'm not doing that from the perspective that I think Western Buddhism is superior in any way. I think there are some Buddhists in the West out there right now who are kind of taking what I've heard called a Protestant approach to it, where they're like, no, we're going to strip away all the bad cultural stuff, and we're going to go back to the way it was in the Buddhist time. That's how we're going to do it. It's going to be the original Buddhism. And that's not it. Buddhism survives and changes by integrating, by looking different from place to place. Just the same way that as Buddhists, we believe that this thing we call a self is this ever-changing, transmutating creature. Buddhism is the same way. It changes. Its aggregates change. Its form changes. And that's my question is what's the next form going to look like? And we're a part of that. All of us, like you, Kevin, you, the listener, me, each one of us is a part of that. And I think in a way though, in the West, it's almost like we are in the Buddhist time and that when the Buddha was saying these things to these people, 
it was new. It, 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 he was saying this to everyone. And I think in the same way, it's as if we in the West are hearing this for the first time now. So I've heard these stories, these songs of the early monks and nuns, um, which are these beautiful poems about them struggling to practice. And what this is, this podcast, this YouTube series, essays, whatever we do with this, this is our poem. This is our version of that, but we can't sing. So we just have to write and talk and do all that, you know, but I, I, I hope that there, that there is resonance in us sharing this, but I hope everyone understands that it's not coming from a place that we think we have the answer. It's we're coming from the place of asking the question. So let's go into exactly why are we doing this? You sort of spoke on it a little bit and I'll speak a little bit to some of my points. Like I said, I think that the teachings are still relevant. So you're asking, well, is Buddhism relevant in the West? My answer is with a very loud yes. Yeah. Even though I didn't say it very loud, for me, it is yes. It's just a matter of tweaking it just a little bit in explanation and simplification. That way, mere mortals such as me and you can actually understand it. We can get there. We're going to have to work for it, though. And also, you know, there's differences between when you're a lay person and when you're a monastic. So when, in Theravada, we have a lot of texts. A lot of them are directed toward monks. And few and fewer of them are toward lay people. Lay people, those texts have a lot of simpler language um, for the audience that the talk is given to. So I think we need to weed out those differences and say, look, yes, the texts say this, but here's the application for those of us that are not a monk. And also, and you met, you've mentioned this uh, previously it, in uh, one of our one of our tips is. Be careful where you're getting your information from. We weed out, we weed through the information, and then we give it to the to our listeners and our viewers from sources that are very reliable and have been proven over the course of time. So, and we can also share those resources as well. That way, you can delve into it yourself. But number one, numero uno for me is I just want to share the teachings to all those that are interested in the teachings. To do that, that is the legacy, I think, that a Buddhist practitioner sort of dreams of, is to be able to share their interpretation and to, you know, you know, when you reach your deathbed, you're just like, I did great. I did great things and have that sort of positive energy because we don't want to have negative energy when we die because then who knows what we're going to be reborn as. That's uh, a whole talk for another day. <laughs> uh, but, you know, yeah, and you're right. I think that's that's all we could ever hope for, is that people who are interested will keep being interested and keep talking. And, you know, Buddhism, because it's not monolithic, we're, we're going to have a lot of different sources. We're going to have a lot of different voices that Kevin and I are channeling or that we're talking about. And sometimes they're going to disagree and sometimes you're going to disagree with them and that's good. And if you, I, what I hope for this is that when you hear things that don't sound right, when you hear things that you're unsure of, when you hear things that just sound that you didn't know were a thing, I hope people talk. I hope they comment. I don't know. We got to figure out how to get people to talk to us on this thing, but I hope people share and I hope your experience becomes a thing we're talking about as well. You know? Yeah. And so 
in addition to what we're doing right now, which is having conversations, we're also going to tackle topics where one of us will lead, the other will sort of support. So like if you're doing a talk on non-self, you're the one that's going to do primarily most of the talking and the research into it. And I'm just sort of there to support with, okay, that's a great viewpoint. Here are some viewpoint, other viewpoints, and then contribute that way. Yeah. And then we're also going to have some shorter uh, talks, I guess, if you want to talk about, you know, explain it like that, that are called Express Buddhism. So in between like five and eight minutes, I think is the most reasonable. We talk about a topic that we're not going to cover in depth. So for example, the first one we're going to do is the life of the Buddha. No controversy there, by the way. Um, and so five to eight minutes, you know, what are the facts? And then that's it. Yeah. Then if you have questions, you communicate with us. So speaking of communication, so at Super Dharma Bros, that's our Twitter. Super Dharma Bros, that's the Facebook page. YouTube, Super Dharma Bros is the channel name. Email, Dharma Bros 2020 at gmail.com. That's how you can communicate with us yeah but so yeah i i, I look forward to um people joining us in the conversation and um yeah thanks thanks for listening to the uh the super dharma bros all right everyone so we'll talk to you next time our first talk is faith in buddhism so tune in for that so in descriptions i'll have all the links and everything that way you can get in touch with us if you have questions or you want to tell us that we're completely wrong. Yeah, thanks. I, I look forward to the hate mail. Thanks, everyone. Okay. So take care, everyone. We'll talk to you next time. Yep. Bye. Now, what I suggest you do is this. Have yourself seated with your backs as safe as possible, but not stiff. And now see how you feel. Don't put words on it. Just feel. But if you can't help words running in your head, don't interfere with them.